Once upon a time in a town not too distant. LV spitter, West Side Rapid. What is this? This is just a poor man's ambition. Trying to bring his schemes to fruition. Listen. What is this? This is the ballad of Brandon Green. Welcome to the ballad of Brandon Green. I'm your host, Brandon Green. And this is episode two. Can't believe it, but shook those jitters off and got episode one out featuring my friend Jade, a.k.a. Bad Buddha. I hope you all enjoyed that. In this episode, I catch up with my colleague and classmate, Nicole Boehner, to talk to her about how law school sort of shaped our perspectives of success and community and what post-law school and life has shown us about success and community and how those two things have have differed. What it's like when you make plans and God or the universe has an alternate route for you to take. The conversation really resonated with me and my own experience, my own journey that I'm on, and I hope it resonates with you as well. Let's get into it. Vegas was the scene, was armed with the paradise. No odds in my favor that I would grow to move major. Who knew what I would achieve? That story, night born in the major. I'm not Jesus, but I'm still the son of God of legit miracle walking. So to you, I seem odd, but my birth certificate's real. I'm like Obama, no fraud. Got the stamp of my state. I hope uh, in this episode we can kind of just catch up and, and see all of the things that have been happening with uh, your blog and the business that you're trying to put together right now and kind of just talk about what that journey's look like. We met in law school. I think I was in my second year when you started. You were in your third year when I officially enrolled. And we were both public interest scholars at, at Boston University both part of the Black Law Students Association and kind of have went different routes. I know for me, law school was sort of a, a formative experience in terms of sort of grappling with different things around my identity and um, just different conceptions of of success, what that looks like, what it is that I actually want to achieve with my career how I want to utilize my time etc and so yeah let's let's get into it a little bit I'm excited to be here thank you for having me I'm really excited about this podcast um and yeah we met when I was visiting during my um I guess pre-admissions weekend at BU Law and uh I checked out the balsa there and you were the person who really like opened up and took me under your wing and um so you've kind of been like my big brother ever since big brother i never had so i've appreciated that and i've appreciated your uh continued generosity of just spirit and time um so i'm excited to be here and support this initiative that you're doing for me I sort of said I wanted to be a lawyer when I was when I was little, but most of what I attempted to do through college and just in my spare time was not really moving me in that direction. I was doing a bunch of creative stuff. I think I've told this story before, but I actually 
started a graduate program in journalism at UNLV in Las Vegas. Didn't know at the time when I enrolled in it that it was research oriented, like researching journalism and not producer oriented. It wasn't developing content, but I got involved in doing stuff for UNLV TV and ultimately ended up creating a podcast or a radio show called Journeys to Prosperity, talking with typically first generation folks about sort of their journey to America and their sort of seeking prosperity once they got here and what that what that looked like. I ultimately ended up dropping out of that program because I didn't like it very much. And after I did all of this work for this show that was my idea, they attempted to have someone else host it. Nevada Public Radio was interested in it and they wanted to have this other woman post it and I was like nah and I quit and after that I started applying for graduate programs in multimedia and so I ended up getting into University of Washington in Seattle and got waitlisted to Columbia and so I was waiting to hear from that when my advocacy work ended up taking me to DC to intern and it was at that time that I sort of spoke with different people about law school. We had this litigation against the state of Nevada to reopen these streets. That lawyer sort of talked me into going to law school. I took the LSAT that summer and applied. I deferred for a year for these other programs and then ultimately ended up going to BU. Although the other funny part of that story is that at the time I was working at, I think, Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, helping to develop their social media team and I got this full ride scholarship and I was like, I'm going to have to change too much about myself to be to go. So I'm not going to go. And I text another friend and colleague of ours, David, who was a third year going into his third year when I was going into my first year in law school. And I was like, I'm not coming. I think I'm going to have to change too much about myself. And he called me and talked to me for an hour and convinced me to, to go to law school. And so even when I was first beginning law school, I was sort of grappling with sort of what it was going to mean for for my identity. And I had a lot of, I think, varied experiences in law school that I think still sort of inform my experience. Now, I know in my class, I think I was one of three black men in the entire 300-something person class. There was one of us in each section. And that was sort of just a weird experience coming from where I'm from and what my formative years had been like before that. I know for you, you interned in the AG's office or you worked in the AG's office? Is that right? So I worked at the U.S. Attorney's office. Yeah. I, I knew when I was maybe like four years old that I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, and so my whole life, I grew up saying that either a lawyer or a teacher. Those were like the things I wanted to be. My parents are both teachers. Um, and I went to college and that's when I started pushing against those notions. And is this really what I wanted to do? So I did a lot of um, community advocacy work. I did work with the courts. Um, I had a, we had called it winter study. Our college was divided into two sessions with an intermediate one for one month um, where you took like a, fun class, um, or something different. And so my first year of college, I went in and there was a class on, um, kids in the courts. 
And I took that class and we shadowed a judge in juvenile court. Um, we sat with her, we helped talk through her um, docket with her and her cases. And she had worked for DCF before that. And um, th- that's the Department of Children's Services. Um, and we chatted a lot about what does it look like to create a system that is not just churning out kids, um, not just kicking kids out of the public school systems um, and setting them into prisons. How do you get alternative sentencing for juveniles? And that's when I knew, yes, this is the right decision. Um, I, I love this and I want to be involved in, I didn't know for definite yet if it was going to be lawyering, but I knew I wanted to do some sort of career that allowed me to do community advocacy and make a change in the way our systems operate. Um, and so the next year I interned with a, uh, a what was then Law 360 um, before it was bought by LexisNexis, an online news journal. Um, and so I did some jur- some journalism work through there. And it wasn't really my jam. I didn't love it as much as I loved that first internship. And so I stuck to doing work that was community advocacy, working with juveniles, um, working with quote unquote troubled youth or at risk youth. Um, And when I graduated, I had the opportunity to join the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Southern District of New York under pre-Berara, and it was the best job I've ever had, probably the best job I will ever have. Um, And that really sealed the deal for me that I wanted to go to law school, despite a lot of the attorneys there saying that don't go to law school. I loved the way that they approached justice. I loved the way that they approached every case. We worked collaboratively. It was a really fun environment. Um, And we all had a real sense of purpose and a real sense of, are we doing the right thing on every case? And we were supported on all levels from doing that. And I think that that was a really formative experience for me because going forward, I expected teamwork and collaboration and community to look a certain way. And so for me, that going into law school, that was a big culture clash um, because BU was not that community-centric place and it didn't encourage that idea that lawyers could be focused on working together in that way or being more of a collaborative family kind of environment. Um, And so I pushed against that a lot of my, my law school career was about saying, no, I I know for a fact, I've seen it. I've worked in that environment um, for a significant amount of time. And I know that this can look different. I know lawyering can look different than the model we're being presented with. And I want to help encourage people to approach lawyering, to approach advocacy, to approach community from this more um, people-oriented aspect. 
it's interesting to me because I felt like I was definitely able to create community in law school, mainly through the Black Law Students Association and both nationally and regionally and then locally to to BU and the surrounding Boston area. And I think that really sort of helped me be able to navigate the things that I disliked about law school. And at the time, Maura Kelly was there, who was over the public interest scholars, and she was sort of like my mom on campus. I don't think I probably would have made it through without her, for sure. But I think the interesting thing about the that community that was formed or is formed is that it felt like we were all sort of in it together. And I think the interesting thing about law school, which I think to some extent prepares you for being a lawyer, was that all of that sort of didn't diverge, but changed after first year and first year grades, because in law school, your first year grades seemingly dictate your future. And I remember coming into law school, I was for sure I didn't want to work at a big law firm. And I didn't try to do anything to work at a big law firm, but I did apply for these different job fairs and I ended up becoming a finalist for Goodwin Proctor's diversity fellowship and all of these things. And I think the experience of applying to get these on-campus interviews and not getting any was also formative for me, just in terms of what it made me think about myself. So on the last episode, I was talking with my friend Jade sort of about self-love and and how important that is. And I reflect back now that in law school, the environment sort of convinced you that you would want something that you didn't want or that you'd be missing out if you didn't get it or that it meant something about you. Because I'm the first lawyer in my family, I always carry a bunch of stress. Like I feel like I carry my whole legacy with me everywhere I go. And I remember I did pretty good first semester I did all right second semester, but I got one grade that I didn't like. And when grades came out, I was in a hotel room in Chicago at this job fair. Interviews were the next day and grades came out. And I got this grade that I didn't agree that I should have gotten, but more importantly, felt like that grade sort of sealed my fate. And I'm in this hotel room crying. I wouldn't answer the phone. My mom called me because I felt like it was sort of over, even though this is this thing that I didn't want. I didn't come in wanting it in the first place. But also, law school is sort of oriented to seemingly value the big law firm jobs over over these public interest jobs, right? And our law school in particular. Yeah, but I think, I mean, years out now, having worked at, at different places and been part of different interviews, even public interest places, put some level of stock on the fact that somebody's either clerked or they've worked at a big law firm. So seemingly they have better training or they're just better. And um, I don't believe that that is the case at all. But I say all that to say that it was just interesting in the way in which it created these dynamics within me that I didn't, I was unprepared for, right? Because I believed I had a very great sense of self when I came in. And then the way that sort of, at least in my year, didn't fracture, but certainly changed relationships. It looks a little bit different if you're working in a public interest summer position and you're lucky enough to get three or $4,000 than if you work as a summer 
associate and you get more, way more money than that. So that kind of like changed the dynamic of getting drinks during the summer or getting lunch during the summer or whatever the case may be. And in some ways, just because of how it was set up through Black Lawyers Guild and all these other sort of entities in law school, also very much felt like not a winnowing sort of process, but more like a sort of like lottery. Some of us were lucky enough to be to be touched and get that golden ticket and others of us were not able to to do so and some of us who went alternate routes talk about this a lot like that summer being kind of like a a real sort of changing of the the guard and dynamic between sort of some of us and and our cohort of of people and i raise that because i know at different points you also kind of struggled with which way to go, which thing was going to be, which route was going to be the route that would ultimately open the door that you wanted to open. And you were the one, one of the ones who was lucky or fortunate enough to be to go that, that big law path. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about sort of that, because I remember we had those discussions in school. Yeah, so for me, I entered law school having been at the U.S. Attorney's Office and having the counsel of a lot of AUSAs and the overall kind of feedback was you need to have really good grades. You need to work for a judge your first summer and you need to get at into a firm and get into a good firm so that you can clerk after you graduate And then you can apply to the U.S. Attorney's Office, right? And so that was, I entered law school with, that was the plan. I'm going to law school and I would do all of those things and check all the boxes. Oh, and you have to be on a journal. That was also part of this narrative of like the things I needed to do to set myself up so that if I wanted to, I could down the road become an AUSA. And so I had a little bit of a different experience because as a public interest scholar, my kind of outlook was longer term than others, right? I was, the idea was, okay, if I don't get into the firm, I'm not checking one of the boxes. So I won't be able to work as an AUSA. Obviously that's not everyone's route, but um, that was kind of the the mindset that I had going in and it did cause a lot of friction with other people in the public interest community, um, who didn't believe that, first of all, that who didn't believe that prosecutors could be good. Um, and that was a leading tension that kind of pushed me from feeling like I fit in with a lot of the public interest scholars who wanted to be defense attorneys. And who felt that the only way to affect change in the system is to be a defense attorney. And so at my core, those were just two competing beliefs, right? Like, I don't believe that's the only way to affect change. I think there are other things we can do. And a lot of the public interest community kind of pushed that to the side. And we're not interested in hearing about um, my kind of take on it. And so that really made me gravitate more towards a very small cohort of people um, 
you a lot of people from balsa um and also i had you and i had sarah and that was really just my anchoring for my first year so i remember like i went to sarah's house and you were there when I got my grades and I was sobbing because I was like, I'm not going to be able to go to a firm. The whole plan's out the window and I'm already, you know, into this semester. I've already laid out money to be here and all of that. Um, and for me, it wasn't all about grades. I was able to partially network, um, into a, uh, an internship with a judge for my first summer. And so that felt like, okay, I'm checking that box. Um, and I just kind of kept on from there, despite, um, being disappointed in some of my grades. Um, so I feel like community was really different for me because my first year I had you and Sarah and your friends that had been a kind of tight knit group. And that embraced me and allowed me to feel like I had community. And then you both graduated and I was like, okay, my year isn't as tight knit. People don't really connect over the same things I'm connecting over. And when I speak of community and wanting these things from a law school, a lot of my classmates just said, well, it's law school. Like you shouldn't expect that. This isn't going to be like your undergrad experience. And so I went about creating the thing that I wanted and needed and knew could exist. Um, and that was where I put a lot of my energy um, I was able to lift up my grade second semester and I was able to get a, a summer job at a law firm. And I think I had less of a less of a division of friends over that. Definitely had friends who did not get offers and did not and other friends who didn't even try to go to a law firm. And I think we all just felt that we were on different pathways by that point. I had made it very clear that like I was doing this and I was checking it out and seeing how it was. And it was an opportunity that I thought was important for me. But for me, it was also a chance to see like, can I do this for two to three years um, and then move on to the clerkship and then um, go on to applying to the U.S. attorney's office? And so I was in a little bit of a different place than some of my classmates who were going to law firms and didn't quite know what they were getting into or why they were doing it. Um, but just felt that that was the thing they were supposed to do because the law school pushed it. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, there's, I think there's two things there that I think is interesting. One, I definitely wasn't one of the people who would have agreed with you that prosecutors can be good. Just wanna, I just want to, <laughs> I just want to make that, I just want to make that clear. Oh no, I know. And I know we've had those conversations. I know. Two, I, but, I think you just said two things that I think are very interesting. One, this notion from the AUSA's office that in order to be an AUSA that you have to check these boxes, right? 
seemingly not any grappling with whether or not, in fact, you actually have to do any of those things to be a good AUSA, I think is 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 interesting. Oh, I don't think it was. No, I don't think it was to be a good AUSA. I think it was a matter of make sure you have these things done to get your foot in the door. Right. But someone at some point determined that getting one's foot in the door requires these things that seemingly indicate quality that don't necessarily indicate quality right yeah but also the other part that you said that i think is is interesting is and i remember that day too when you were crying about your grades and saying that the plan is out the window and i'd like to you know dig a little bit deeper into into that right because Mm -hmm. at least for me the plan being out the window just seems to be like what life is right like like it just always is ordered chaos if even if even that amen <laughs> so when i graduated my whole plan was to go to las vegas i never wanted to not return home and i was waiting to hear from someone who had offered me a job and hadn't provided me with details ultimately i ended up missing the filing deadline for nevada had applied for a job in San Francisco. Didn't know I didn't get it, so I followed up with them, and they were like, we hired a more experienced person, but would you be interested in these bridge fellowships, which I hadn't even contemplated or heard of. Found out that BU was granting these bridge fellowships, but the application was due on Friday. This was on Monday, so I had to quickly put together an application for that. Sarah did the same thing. Ultimately graduated and came to the Bay started studying for the bar and didn't find out that we got the fellowships until midway studying for the bar. And even then I still wanted to just go back to Las Vegas. So the plan was to do that, but then try to study for the bar and go back to Las Vegas and then kids in a house and didn't get hired at the place that I, that I did this fellowship at and then had an infant to take care of, went to this, firm that I didn't want to go to, this small union firm, because I had to provide for my family and be to pay my mortgage. And it was the worst experience of my life. It was like the worst eight or nine months of my life. So bad that I tried to quit being a lawyer. It was horrible. There was no mentorship, no guidance, no anything. It was the it was the worst. And I wasn't yet used to being a lawyer. And there was a, a time when someone spoke to me in a way that required me to take an hour long walk and call my mother and my grandfather and FaceTime with my son so that I wouldn't do anything stupid. Left there and went to Color of Change, which I thought was going to be awesome because it's an organization for black folks, by black folks, and probably legitimately the second worst place that I've worked so far. And there's just always been this like, these changes. So I ended up at the public defender's office, had an intern at the public defender's office, but got hired there. And that was cool. And that worked out. And ultimately I met the executive director of the last organization I worked at. And so there's always been almost like this flying by the seat of my, my pants. You know, I wasn't on a journal in law school and luckily ended up being able to do this independent study with our critical race studies teacher. And I was able to produce an, an article. And it's just been, for me, every time I think I have a plan or some sense of direction, it's all sort of, sort of upended. Amen. It's that, like that saying, you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And I think for me, <laughs> 
for me, it's been ironic because I was able to follow the plan for a while. You know, I, the plan, I had this mentality that you just will life into the way you want it and that you keep pushing until it becomes that way. And for me, um, one of the things I've always carried and I carried it really heavily into law school was the fact that there were plenty of other qualified people who looked like me, who had maybe similar backgrounds to me, who fill in the blank, right? Who equally deserved my spot, right? And so the fact even that I got chosen to be at a top law school, that I was there and I was the first person in my family to become a lawyer, um, that I would... I had to make sure I made the most of that. And so I really just kind of pushed and did everything I could um, to keep following the plan because I thought that was the key to my success, you know, was following this plan. This was the key to my dream. And it's what had worked for me really my whole life up till then. Um, And then, as you know, uh, Fast forward, I ended up working at the firm after law school and I got sick. And it really wasn't until I developed my neurological conditions that I realized, like, I can make as many plans as I want. Like, a lot of this is not in my control. And some of it is. Um, Some of it, it's kind of, it's been a really interesting time with COVID to reflect on this kind of thing because the whole world is dealing with the kind of grieving that I had to do as soon as I got sick. Um, And so it's been really interesting to watch other people um, be really upset, rightfully so, and mourning kind of the loss of quote-unquote normal life. But also to be like, yeah, I've been dealing with this for the past, you know, three and a half, four years now of mourning the life that I could have had and the life that I worked really hard for. Um, And so for me, it was just it was a little different. Like I didn't learn that lesson that life is just going to like do what it do um, and till later. and. I keep learning that every step of the way, you know, every plan I make this being sick has been really difficult. Um, being sick with rare autoimmune things. I don't wish this on anybody. Um, and having to learn really about the medical field and the lack of advocacy for particularly women of color, um, within the medical field and with women who have endometriosis and all these diseases that I didn't even know existed, but are incredibly common and understudied by doctors. Um, and that's really when I learned, you know what, I can make a plan. I had a plan to go back to the firm after four months. You know, my first doctor was like, take these medicines, rest and, you know, do this physical therapy and you should be able to get back to work in like four to six months. Um, fast forward three to four years later and I still can't like walk for more than five, 10 minutes. Um, 
so life has just been one continuing series of having to pivot and adjust and figure out, okay, what am I going to do? Things, you know, the ground shifted under me. What am I going to do now? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the, I guess what makes life both interesting and exciting and, and tragic all at the same time. You never know what, what may happen, what, what, is or isn't possible in every direction. So in all the sort of exciting, wow, I can't believe this is happening to me positive way and sort of, wow, I can't believe this is happening to me in the in the opposite way. And I certainly have not and cannot even understand a lot of the stuff that, that you've been experiencing. But, you know, I, I spoke about this with, with Jay just, you know, for the last year, I've just been on this kind of, journey myself just sort of thinking through a lot of different stuff and having to check a lot of assumptions and even you know what does it look like and what does it mean in terms of these achievements like at the end of the day do these achievements make you make you happy or make you feel fulfilled or the fact that one of the things that I think about all the time, and it's always been in the back of my mind, I think as part of this sort of imposter syndrome, is the fact that, yeah, I went to law school, I have a law degree, I passed the bar on the first try, all of these things. And yet, most of the time, the fate of me and my family is in someone else's hands. Right. I haven't hung a shingle. No, I feel you on that for I mean, not only on the working for other people, but like on the heels of black men and women being kind of hunted down what seems like every day, every week. It is hard to be like, OK, what do you, you know, what does this piece of paper mean um, when you can't go for a jog? Like, you know, what what does this really mean? What am I doing? And um it's hard. It's a it's a really hard thing to grapple with, even though you have achieved you the quote unquote, you have, you know, done the things that people aspire to. Um it's a really hard thing to process. Yeah, I always think, you know, my mom is a teacher, she worked for the same school district, not the same school, but her whole career. And I, I just have never had that experience. So I always think a lot about at any given time, a lot of the things that I've worked for and that I've earned that someone can take, right? Unless I start my own organization, unless I'm running my own law firm, whatever. All my benefits can be gone. My salary can be gone. And how does one proof their life against that? I don't think they do. (laughs) I, I don't, I really don't think you can. And I think, 
maybe that's the thing that COVID is showing everybody because even if you have your own law firm, even if you have your own business, like look at all the small business owners who have not gotten the it's check protection program that, you know, it was instead went to a lot of the big wig companies who have, you know, smaller companies under their umbrella. Um, I think I, I'm as part of the entrepreneurial community, a lot of the conversations that are taking place right now are about like, what am I going to do about my business? I'm not getting paid or I'm not getting a stimulus check. Or if I do get a stimulus check, I'm not going to get it for another three months, but I have, you know, a mortgage and kids and this and that, and people are really stressed. Um, so I'm not sure that you can ever life proof yourself unless you come with uh, generational wealth behind you. And I think that's a big problem just of our country. Um, but I think the best we can do about that right now is com- I, I come back to community and supporting one another. Um, that's where our ancestors lived. That's the way our ancestors survived. Um and it's, it's a thing I keep coming back to. I would not be here, but for my village, um, this is a hard, hard road to walk. And without my village, I, I really, I, I really don't see how I would get here. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. You, you said that initially that you thought you would be back to the law firm within within four months and that didn't necessarily manifest sort of what happened after that and and sort of how have you to the extent you've been able to sort of readjusted or how's that experience sort of shaped the different things that you're trying to work on now yeah it's um so it was very clear in four to six months that I was not going to be able to return and do, you know, 60 to 80 hour billable work weeks were just not possible. And so I was able to get after lots of self advocacy and, uh, lots of fighting for myself. Um, I was able to get long-term disability um, so that would allow me to stay out of the firm for a year on medical leave. And so I was like, okay, great. Checking in with the doctors. They were like, all right, you're doing all the right things. Keep at it. You know, maybe you just need a little longer, whatnot. Um, we'll change these medications, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and a year came and went a year of fighting with insurances and, um, advocating for myself and, for accommodations that I believed I was due. And it became pretty clear that the accommodations I would need were not accommodations that um, I was going to get. Um, And so I ended up not going back to the firm and that was heartbreaking to me. Um, and it was the beginning of having to reckon with life kind of coming out from under my feet and having to rebuild. 
and also having to redefine how I looked at myself, right? It felt like a big failure, if I'm honest, whether I was sick or not. And I understood on one level that I did nothing to make myself sick. So it wasn't my fault, but it still felt like failure to have to walk away from the firm. And a lot of that was messaging I had internalized from people within firm worlds who speak down upon people who leave firms, right? There is this culture, firm culture, where um, people feel that if you leave the firm, it's often because you can't hack it. And I had internalized that message along the way. And so physically not being able to go into work felt like I'm failing. And that was a really, really hard lesson to unlearn. Um, And I think it goes back to part of what the foundation of my company is. So now I run a, a leadership and culture consulting company. And I also run a blog, Melanin Moxie. And those ideas came from my healing process. Like I, the question I had asked in law school, like, why can't we have a more collaborative and community centric uh, environment is the question that I am challenging organizations and schools and companies to embrace now. Why can't we have cultures that are collaborative and community oriented and that support employees showing up fully, not just certain employees, but all employees. Um, Why can't we create those cultures? Because we know studies show that those cultures, the ones where people really feel like they are part of the team are the ones that succeed. And I don't think I would have I know I would never have started my own business if I hadn't gotten sick. I know that I know so much more now about the flaws in the insurance and medical systems than I knew before and the disparities in treatment. Um, I never really thought like I, my passion was, was, equity in a different way, um, often juvenile centered, often centered around restorative justice, but I wouldn't have pictured this kind of work and actually looking to achieve restorative justice through these means if I hadn't gotten sick. So, um, it's been a lot of making lemonades out of lemons But it's also been a growing journey of unlearning a lot of the unhealthy behaviors and um, attitudes that I had absorbed. Yeah, I mean, I applied all of that. And um, I think I go back and forth on whether or not I think that the kind of corporate cultures can actually be designed in a way that actually appeals to everyone. Because most of the time you don't have everyone in, in leadership. Right. And 
everyone isn't perceived the same. Exactly. So when I was a public defender, I got sick of being the only black person in court not charged with some crime. So that's when I first decided to grow my hair out. I decided to grow my hair out sort of to be like, I don't have to fit whatever model of a lawyer that you envision. And I know for myself, I often sort of overcompensate in a lot of ways. So I tell a bunch of jokes and try to like lighten up the environment and bring levity because if I'm quiet, people think that I'm angry. I've Mm -hmm. tried to share out my personality characteristics as demonstrated by the Myers-Briggs test. So I'll be like, I'm an INFJ. This is what that means. That means that I can be extroverted or introverted. So if I'm quiet, it has nothing to do with you. Or I took the Enneagram and I shared that out. And I took all of the different personality tests just to be like... Do all the things, yes. (laughs) I am not threatening, yes. (laughs) This is me. All the different Mm -hmm. shapes of me. I'm a Leo. If you believe in astrology, there's a lot of characteristics about the Leo that... (laughs) that are me, right? Like all of these different things. And I still have found that if I say something, it's received a very different way than if someone else says something. And one of my former bosses, she told me that, that that's my power. And I sort of have to accept that, that when I speak, it carries a lot of weight, even if I don't want it to. And that, Weirdly, I never understood this, but like weirdly, there's some like FOMO attached to if I go talk to more people in the office than everybody else, the couple of people I didn't talk to are going to feel super left out, even if they've never spoke to me. And I've always felt like that was weird. Like if I see somebody talking to other people and they don't talk to me and I've never tried to talk to them, I'm not going to feel any way about it because it's like I never tried to talk to you so why am I missing you trying to talk to me that just seems strange but for me that's been part of my life for ever I used to get in trouble in high school for doing my work and putting my head down and not being disruptive and then I get sent out of class my mom was like why are you sending him out of class what's his grade and the teacher was like he has an A and My mom was like, okay, so why aren't you sending him out of class? And she'd be like, well, he didn't ask for more work. My mom would be like, well, is he going to get extra credit for doing more work? And the teacher was like, no. And then the teacher was like, I don't think Brandon likes me. And my mom was like, but he doesn't have to like you, though. All he has to do is do his work and not not be disruptive. Like, I don't understand. That's not part of the grade. Yeah, like, I just don't, I don't understand that. And that's all just to say that, like, I have yet to figure out the way to present myself that somebody's not going to find offensive. Like if I don't speak, that's a problem. But if I speak and I say what is true to me, then that's also a problem. 
And I don't really know how to, after a while, walking those dances just become exhausting, right? Like it's, it's an exhausting thing to, to do and to always have to like play this dance, you know, because again, I feel like there's so much that I don't control. Yeah. I think, I think you're exactly right. And it's exactly what led me to say, okay, well, it kind of in the same way that you were talking about of embracing your power, which if you had said these words to me, you know, three or four years ago, I would have just been like, wow, you are just really like out there and you ascribe to these like woo woo things that I just don't believe in. So, yeah, it's amusing to me um, the things I've embraced along this way. But one of the things that I've reflected on a lot and worked through a lot in therapy and with my business coach um, has been that a lot of times the thing that I disliked the most um, about my own personality in law school, right? I felt like I was always the person speaking up about something that I didn't think was right or something that I thought could change or something that I thought could be made better. And I was willing to do the work to do all of those things, but I felt like it needed to be addressed. Like, here's an issue. Let's fix it, right? This is what we're here for. This is why I'm in these leadership positions, et cetera. And I felt like a thorn for so much of the time. Like I was just this like disruptor that people didn't want to deal with. And I wasn't being aggressive. They, I was often cast as, um, sometimes an angry black woman, which was interesting. Um, I had not been that cast that way before law school. Um, but I was often cast as like, you know, just, oh, there she goes again, or there she's going, you know, she's got this thing. Um, and that was a really hard thing for me to struggle with. And I saw it more at the firm, right, where I would bring up things that I felt like could be changed or could be addressed. and it wasn't well received or it wasn't really embraced or it was kind of like, Oh yeah, maybe. And kind of brushed off. And one of the things I've learned is that, um, that is one of my superpowers, right? Disrupting isn't going to be welcomed in all systems, but it is a really important function to have. If you are disrupting in the name of equity, if you are disrupting systems that are made to oppress people, um, you're doing important work and it is not work that will always be welcomed because you are changing the systems, um, because you are saying, Hey, this isn't right. Um, and it can be really dangerous work career wise. Um, for some people life wise, right. We see that often, unfortunately, 
And I think that's the thing that I have most recently been doing is just learning to embrace that. Yes, I am a wave maker and I believe in the changes that I propose. I believe they can be done. And I believe that we need to stop saying this is how it's always been done as an acceptable answer. Um, and so there are some people who are on board and there are some people who like, who, who won't mess with that, you know, who just want more of the same. They want some more bias trainings. They want some more, um, you know, this is great. You're doing a great job and we're just going to do this checkbox professional development um, and we're going to keep doing things the way they were. And I think that is starting to change. Um, there are more and more in the schools, you can see it most easily more and more schools saying, actually, like, let's look at the community we're building. Let's look at how we're making our students feel. Are we empowering them? Um, and that's where I've gotten the most joy, um, and seen the most change so far, but yeah, a lot of organizations, um, don't necessarily want to walk the walk even when they talk the talk and I think that's when you get those examples like you brought up of people not being able to bring their full selves and I see it now um, I've been able to go I've been fortunate to go into some businesses who really do talk the talk and walk the walk and been able to show up and say you know what like have you considered these things about accessibility and how are you treating um, and people with this or that? And how are you making sure that people are bringing their full selves in and are welcomed for that? And so that gives me a lot of hope that the tide is starting to change, but I don't think it's an easy road. I don't think it will be an easy road. Um, and I think that there is a lot to be said for embracing that part of your voice is echoing and um, maybe it just needs to. I don't know if I'm ever going to feel comfortable bringing my full self. I mean, even the reason I'm doing this podcast is, you know, this is in line with things that I've done my whole adult life that I stopped uh, doing because I became a lawyer and I had this new identity and what does that, what does that mean? And I've always been known as a person that tells the truth. Like I'm always like, if you don't actually want to know what I think, don't ask me. Cause if you ask me, I'm going to tell you the truth of what I think about that thing. Cause I would rather operate from a place of integrity then operate differently, but that doesn't always go well either. And, you know, I've been an advocate my whole life, much mm -hmm. to my mother and grandmother's chagrin. Like I've always <laughs> been, I don't say much, but when I speak, like I'm going to say what it is that I feel. So my grandmother told me one time, Either I had to be a lawyer or own my own business. Because she was like, you're not going to be to work for anybody. I've since proven her wrong. And um, I'm a lawyer and doing something on the side that's that's my own. But I just 
I just wonder if if these spaces are even capable of receiving people as their full selves. I think that's a great question. I like to hope that the answer is yes. I think some spaces are not. Um, and I think those are the spaces that are unwilling to make changes, unwilling to say, you know what, something is not working because we're doing the same things and getting the same results. So let's, let's step outside that box, right? Let's, let's do something different. Um, those spaces I think have a lot of potential for change and positive change. I think the trickier part is creating those spaces in a way that is authentic and allows people to know, yes, it is safe to show up as my full self. It is safe. I mean, I didn't start wearing my hair natural until, I don't know, towards the end of being at the firm, right? Um, Because I was worried about what does it look like? I was worried about how are, how am I showing up? Is this how a lawyer shows up? And we had, I had conversations with people at the firm um, because of the way that I was treated if you know my hair was curly versus where it wasn't um and it to me like spaces just have to be willing to make that change and I think we're getting more and more of them and you see it a lot in the tech sector um I think the legal space in um more creative spaces some firms are doing great things um some firms are doing really great things and making like really doing the work to make the change um and i applaud firms that are doing that i applaud the people at firms who are willing to be those wave makers and raise their hands and say you know what something has to be different um and i know some of those people and they're amazing and doing really phenomenal work um And I think we just need more of that. It is going to be a long, difficult journey, particularly under this political climate um, where equity is being twisted and equality is being twisted in a way that um, seems to want to just protect the status quo and disguise itself as equality. But I I do think there's hope. I think there are enough wave makers that if we choose to step into that power, we can actually make a serious change. I can appreciate that. So, I mean, given sort of all that you've said about sort of your being able to strictly adhere to this plan and then life happening and um, how you've sort of taken life happening and tried to infuse that into what you're trying to build. What is your conception of success now and how has it changed from what you viewed as success before? I think my measures of success have changed if that makes sense more so than my conception of success and I think maybe that's part of the part of the problem maybe problem I don't know if that's the right word um 
I think success to me looked like being in a position to make the changes that would create the world I wanted to see. Growing up, you know, my biological father was shot and killed when I was young. And I always grew up with this kind of feeling that, um, A, life wasn't promised. And, you know, like for the longest time, I, I didn't think, you know, he was died when he was before he turned 22. And uh, I, for the longest time, didn't know, what, am I going to get to live that long? Am I going to live longer? What's that going to feel like? Um, and so success has meant carrying on his legacy, carrying on my mother's legacy, and all the things they sacrificed for me, all the things that my dad, who adopted me when I was young, um, have has worked and still within me. And a lot of that is about saying, let's create chances for people who haven't otherwise had them. You know, my dad was a teacher in the South Bronx for 30 years and that's what he did. How, how can he use his privilege to actually change the course of someone else's life? And so that's what success looked like for me was doing that on a larger scale, doing that. And for me, I, I always felt like, but for one step, but for one, you know, thread pulled differently in life, I could have a totally different life. And I felt like it was my duty and my job since I have this life instead of different life that I could have very easily to use that privilege to kind of break down some of the barriers in other people's ways and in my own way, you know, and just to make some sort of space and to make some sort of change um, and to acknowledge that those barriers exist. Um, and so I guess by that definition, like, yeah, I am working and I am achieving success. It just looks a lot different. And it's a lot harder than I imagined it would look. And it's a lot more complicated because when I imagined success young, I didn't consider also like family as part of that, you know? So now considering (laughs) I cannot go through a day without someone's help. Like, I just can't do that. That's the end of the sentence. Um, And considering like, now my husband's dreams and our dreams together as a family and my parents' dreams are all now also morphed into my idea of success now in a way that they weren't before. Um, and so I, I'm still working on naming my idea of success now. I know it has to do with affecting change towards more equal spaces right towards spaces where people can show up and be themselves and be heard and appreciated um whether that is a classroom a office or a medical room at the doctor's office um I think that is what it looks like but I also understand that I have no idea what the next hurdle is going to be um you know I have three, I have like six doctor's appointments, um, in the next week and a half that each one could change the course of my life. Um, and 
I understand that. And I understand that that definition of success is just going to be evolving. And that's not comfortable for me. I like things to be uh, set in stone and kind of more secure, but I'm learning to become comfortable with it. I mean, a lot of that resonates with me. I made more money this year than I made ever in my career as a lawyer. And um, in some ways that was great for my family. In other ways, I wasn't as happy as I was in jobs when I was making less money. Um, and, and it also didn't really feel like a, such a large increase after taxes or, or whatever. And so all of these sort of, all of these marks of success don't really get at what is most important, you know? So like for me in this era, this COVID crisis, I've just been trying to spend time with my kids and, and reflect and, and think about my next steps and what it is that I want to do and, and really trying to think about my time as the most valuable asset and how am I going to utilize that to sort of shape the the life and experience I want for me and that I want for them, even if it doesn't translate externally to someone else's conception of, of success. You know, I, I still want to do advocacy. I still want to do all the stuff that I've been doing and um, a lot of interesting opportunities, but I just think about just my own road. And every time I thought something happened uh, or was happening in my favor, things sort of switched and put me on a different path. And ultimately every time I got put on a different path, I actually ended up in a place that was better. Um, And I didn't, I certainly had some control over some portions of that, but while it was happening, it felt and seemed really bleak. And it was only on the other side that I was able to look back and reflect and be like, oh, yeah, like that, that incident and this incident worked well together to produce this result. But in the midst of it, it felt, it felt terrible. So, um, yeah, that, that really resonates with, with me. Um, if people want to sort of follow your journey and what you're what you're up to, where can they find information about what you're doing? Sure. So they can go to my website, which is NicoleGabrielle.com. Nicole has an H, so it's N-I-C-H-O-L-E-G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E.com. Um, I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. I am Nicole Gabrielle. And I, you can also join or follow, you can follow my uh, Melanin and Moxie uh, Instagram account or blog. There is a Facebook community for women of color um, to really work on talking about these issues and talking about what success looks like and getting support from other women of color um, and allies to be able to step into these powers and be able to really own these truths in spaces that do not want us to own our truths. Um, so you're welcome for women of color, um, and non-binary people. Um, and that's a space there too. And I welcome them and look forward to connecting with whoever would like to reach out. Well, I appreciate it. It's always good to catch up. Um, thank you for, for joining and, um, you know, I hope, uh, hope folks are able to get some, some nuggets from, from your story that they can apply to their own. 
Thanks, B. I'm really glad you're doing this. And I look forward to getting to hear more episodes. Thank you. This next verse for anybody, you know, feeling lost a little bit. I'm feeling like an old soul trapped on a long road. Trying to reconnect, but my spirit's on hold. Life was cut short with my story untold. So it seems I have some baggage I have yet to unload. And in my suitcase, well, that's my true place. That's where I go to hide from people who are two-faced. That's where I go to strap up and get my boots laced. That's where I go to slow down life's pace. And in my carry-on, that's where I have my dreams. I help is so very long. Gotta carry on the tradition of a people on a mission who switch jurisdictions to escape bad conditions. Just to Find that the West is still racist, whites are still aces, blacks are still deuces. Might not hang nooses, the desert is fruitless, but we stay strong, cause the truth is we. Are.